Hey, everybody. We're talking to Dallas Glass today. An amazing guy runs the Northwest Avalanche Center and is one of the few people who have climbed to the top of Everest. He's also a great friend of mine. You do not want to miss this incredible conversation. Welcome to The Last 10%. This podcast dives into incredible conversations that will inspire you to finish well and finish strong. Your host, Dallas Burnett, is the founder and CEO of Think Move Thrive, which exists to create cultures that others envy. His secret is learning from the best. Listen as Dallas's guests share their journeys and valuable advice on living in the last 10%. If you are a leader, a coach, a business owner, or someone looking to level up, you're in the right place. Remember, you can give 90% effort and make it a long way, but it's finding out how to unlock that last 10% that makes all the difference in your life, your relationships, and your work. Now, here's Dallas. Welcome, welcome, welcome. and Welcome to the last 10%. I am Dallas Burnett. I'm sitting in my 1905 Koch Brothers Barber Chair in Thrive Studios. And more importantly, talking to a great friend of mine named Dallas Glass. Oh, Dallas, it's good to really see you, man. Every time we get together, I always laugh and remember getting to uh, play guitar with you on stage at Tillman Auditorium. And you're like, I'm Dallas. And I was like, I'm Dallas. And the place just erupted. <laughs> it's really good to get to see you again. It was epic. That was so fun. That's a great memory. And it's so fun to be able to talk to another Dallas. And so we always introduce each other that way. It was awesome. Those are good days. Good times, man. Well, thanks for being here. Man, I just it was so excited. I mean, you have been running the Northwest Avalanche Center. You're over this Northwest Mountain School. You've climbed Mount Everest, biked hundreds of miles without stopping. Like, I feel so lazy. Like, I mean, I legitimately feel like I should be doing push-ups while we're talking or something. Like, I just feel like, you know, just totally working out right now. That's amazing. I just feel like I got really, really fortunate with some great jobs. Allow me to get to go do, see, experience some pretty amazing things, get to meet amazing people. Couldn't have ever dreamed it up like this. Definitely would never have fit into a playbook. And things just line up sometimes. Yeah, I feel really fortunate for that. That's so cool. So now... You're an Alabama man. You come from Alabama and you're not in Alabama anymore. So tell us about kind of your journey out of the South and now how you got to where you are. You're out in the Northwest and uh, tell us how that transition took place. Yeah. So I am from Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, I generally think that's probably one of the biggest uh, red flags out there that uh, you got an avalanche forecaster from Alabama. <laughs> but, uh, you know, especially I didn't grow up skiing. I, uh, I didn't really do any of this stuff until I was working on my graduate work. But Dallas, you and I met at Clemson. So I, I left my home there in Birmingham to go to Clemson. And that was a big step for me. Uh, I was encouraged by my parents. And I moved there knowing no one. I was a shy little kid. And I just remember how much stepping into that environment helped me learn to open up, to be less of a wallflower, be able to make new friends and develop relationships and, and build skills. And, and then, you know, everybody was like, yeah, we'll, we'll stick around. And next thing I know, I'm moving out to Reno, Nevada for my graduate work. I fully expected. I mean, and I remember telling my dad, I'll be there three years, then move home to Reno, you know, like who wants to live in Reno? 
I spent 10 years there. <laughs> so yeah, I, when I moved out West for my graduate work, I started skiing and I'd been a rock climber for a long portion of my life. I started climbing in high school and I, I really didn't even want to get into skiing. I thought it was silly. I was like, man, going to ski resorts, that's stupid. I just want to go ice climbing. I didn't want to walk into these ice climbs with snowshoes. I wanted to use skis. And so I, I started learning to ski. And next thing I knew, I was skiing six days a week. I mean, I haven't swung tools into waterfall ice in probably 10 years. Just skied my brains out. And uh, you know, all three years of my graduate work, I finished up. I started doing research for the U.S. government up in Alaska. And I needed something to do during the winter. And so I was like, well, uh, I think I'll go back to Tahoe and see if I can get a job as a ski patroller. And that first winter out of grad school, I did. I got a job at this ski resort on the northeast corner of Lake Tahoe called Mount Rose. And I didn't know it at the time, but that was probably like one of the pivotal decisions in my life. Right? I was like, had this opportunity to start ski patrolling and I had a couple of different job offers and I chose Mount Rose. My first year, I had great bosses, great mentors. And my first year, uh, we were talking about this earlier, but there was um, a really senior patroller. Pat had been patrolling there for around 30 years. And he and uh, our patrol director, they were out doing what we call uh, avalanche control. So they go out there, you know, for those of you who go to ski resorts, you may be familiar with this, but like the ski patrol literally goes out there in the morning when the resort is closed and they use explosives to bring down avalanches so that when you get there, that threat is greatly reduced. And they were out there doing that. Um, in a closed area of the ski resort. And I will never forget this entire series of events is ingrained in details. I remember my patrol director getting on the radio and saying, Pat's caught in the slide. And I could hear his voice. And one of my coworkers, she was actually my supervisor. She looked at me. She knew I had a lot of time in the mountains. She knew I was really skilled in avalanche rescue. And she was like, go now. And I remember getting on the chairlift and I'm riding up to the top of the hill and this like five minute chair ride was an eternity. Oh my gosh. You're sitting there for five minutes, just riding the chair up the mountain, knowing that he's in trouble. Mike is telling us he can't find him on the radio. And I look down, I've got my like avalanche beacon out the way we can like locate people who are buried underneath the snow. And I'm like looking at it and I'm like, okay, remember how to use this thing. Like you got to have all this. And I ski off the top and I ski right to the accident site and I'm skiing down the thing. And all I can remember the whole time is being like, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. Because it's like 45 degrees, double black diamond, and it's like a skating rink of ice. I'm looking at my beacon, and I'm looking around, and I can't find Pat. And I get all the way down to my boss, and we can't find Pat. And we eventually did. Um, a little square of his collar, about four inches by four inches of red collar was sticking out of the snow. His avalanche beacon has malfunctioned. He had some pretty bad injuries. but that event was critical in my life for several reasons. One, because it's obviously still stuck in there. There are so many things I do every day because of that accident. But there was a moment there at our mountain in our ski patrol where we took resources and we dedicated those resources to avalanche forecasting, monetary resources, time resources, personnel resources. And Mike, he basically the next year, he's like, I want you to be my avalanche forecaster. And I'm like, Mike, I've only been skiing four years. And he's like, that's okay. You know what's going on. And he was so great at, uh, you know, you and I were chatting about this earlier too, but Mike is one of those people who I look back at and like, he took this chance on this like young snot nosed kid from Alabama who probably had no business being an avalanche forecaster. 
And he was like, there's something in this kid that's like, this is going to work. And he's going to pick this up and he knows what's going on and he's moldable. And uh, Mike was really great about being a mentor. He was really great about putting mentors in my life very intentionally. And he was really awesome about giving me just enough rope to hang myself, but never letting me hang myself. And I look back, I spent six years forecasting for Mount Rose and the highway there as well. I learned so much in those six years. And I look back at it now and I'm like, man, I knew nothing in those six years. But I had this great team around me. I had this great boss who believed in me. And I had all these people that were just like, yeah, this is going to work. I followed my, my now wife at the time, girlfriend, up here to Seattle, where I'm talking to you from tonight. I left that job and I couldn't believe it. Everybody's like, you're kidding me. You're leaving a ski area forecasting job. Like these things don't come up very often. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. And uh, I got up here and I just love going skiing. I started sending in information to the Northwest Avalanche Center. Uh, So what we do is we put out avalanche advisories for the general public. If you're going to go out, you may be more familiar with these things for like tide forecasting if you're a surfer or river flow forecasting for kayakers, people who get into like kite surfing and stuff like that. There's some stuff that's similar for like wind stuff. We do that for avalanches and we do it for avalanche centers all across the Western U.S. And we do it every single day. And these avalanche advisories help people get information to then go snowmobiling or snowshoeing or backcountry skiing. We work with the ski resorts. We work with the highways to keep the highways open. They have their own teams, but we give them data and information. And I got this phone call that first year and this director of the Northwest Avalanche Center was like, who are you and where did you come from? (laughs) (laughs) I'll never forget Kenny calling me because he's like, you suddenly show up, your name's all over our public information page. And one day it's up near the Canadian border up at Mount Baker. And the next day it's down in Oregon at Mount Hood. And he's like, you're everywhere and you keep sending the data and you obviously know what you're talking about. And I was like, yeah, I just, you know, I'm an avalanche forecaster. I just moved up here. And over the years I've worked, I basically started with the Northwest Avalanche Center that first winter working as a, an avalanche awareness instructor. I'd go teach one hour classes for free at night at like REI. And I'm like, who are you teaching in these classes? Like, I mean, are these people that are just, you know, little apprentice avalanche forecasters that just show up and like, I want to learn about how to, I don't know. Like, what is this? People just like you that want to go out and go take a hike during the winter, but they know that, hey, snow in the winter means that there's this like other thing I should be aware of. And so uh, some of them are getting into the sports for the first time. Some of them may have been doing it for years, but they just never bothered to go get some education. And so that job has developed for me over the years at the Northwest Avalanche Center. At that point, there was three avalanche forecasters. They were all meteorologists. And now we have the entire staff, including our nonprofit at that time, was, I think, five people. We now have a staff of 18. The forecasting staff where I work, there's 10 of us. I will give you one small correction. I don't run it. I like to be the guy right below that. I'm the deputy director of the Northwest Avalanche Center. And uh, so I get to, I think it's the best job in avalanche forecasting. I get to be a part of that leadership team. I get to help direct where we're going, what we're going to do in the future. I get to be a part of those decisions oversee our field program when we send people out into the mountains. I also still get to go out into the mountains and I get to be in the trenches and with our forecasting team and putting out forecasts on a daily basis. And 
I uh, spent all day, uh, you and I were laughing about that. I spent all day hiking around in the snow, still in my ski gear. <laughs> it was like 65 degrees here today and you're hiking in the snow. <laughs> That's amazing. It's a great job. It's a mixture of public safety messaging, weather forecasting, education, and outreach. And I feel really lucky now that I get to do that for so much of my career. And so now I'm sitting at like 15 years working as an avalanche forecaster. This is something cool because I, I feel like, you know, when you hear a lot of advice that's given to people that are early in their career, you know, you'll hear some movie star, some public figure that say, if you just, you know, chase your passion, then, you know, you'll enjoy your work and go find something you're passionate in, just go chase that passion. But it doesn't really feel like that's really what happened for you. It was like, you're kind of moving and you're exploring and you get some doors open and some opportunity. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'll try this. And then all of a sudden that, you know, pops in, turns into that. Tell me, what is it now that kind of gets you up in the morning? Because you're obviously enthusiastic about what you do. You have a, obviously, you know, the mission and purpose that you're getting up and fulfilling every day. But tell me how that came about and when you kind of woke up and said, oh, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. There's kind of three pieces that I look at that really get me up in the morning. They probably come at different stages. I knew early, early in my life that I was not going to do well if you put me in a nine to five job in front of a computer screen in an office. And so even when I went to Clemson, I was there for forestry and I was like, I want a job outside. And I knew that. And so that piece is still very fundamental to me. I actually, I gave a lecture this past week to a university class here and I had this realization. I have never worked a year round job in my life. (laughs) I'm, I'm 40 years old. I love it. I've never worked a year on job. And I've also never had a job where I had to go to a desk every single day. Don't get me wrong. There's computer work. Every job has it. There's always time behind a desk. There's lots of meetings, but I want to be outside. Number two, the work environment is really important to me. And I mean that in both directions, up and down. I need bosses that believe in me and that I believe in. And I need to know that they actually value me as a person and as a worker. And if I don't have that, I can't work for them. I will work for way less money if I think I'm valued as a person. And then I need a team around me that I can connect with. And those things, that was one that really developed for me at Mount Rose. Because that was one of those moments in my life where like, I had this boss, Mike Ferrari. I should have mentioned his name earlier, but Mike. He believed in me and our assistant patrol director, Paulette Snyder, like she believed in me and they've spent so much time and energy building into me. But I also had coworkers that, you know, we were out there in it together, like crawling down these ridgelines with 80 mile per hour winds, lighting and hucking explosives into these avalanche areas so that we could keep the highway open. Those bonds that you build are really, really huge. And then the last one for me is I need people that I can serve. and. That one probably came to me actually when I was up here, probably more in my mountain guiding world, which is now what I do for the other half of my year. And I started guiding also kind of on a whim. It wasn't intentional. It wasn't like, I'm going to go be a mountain guide. Uh, I had this friend who I had not seen in like four or five years. And I bumped into her as my last winter in Lake Tahoe. And uh, she was like, I thought you were living in Alaska. And I was like, I thought you lived in Washington. And we were both living in Tahoe. She found out I was moving to Washington. And she's like, hey, I work for this company. I want you to be a guide for this company with me. And I was like, Jenny, I can't be a climbing guide. And she's like, you can totally be a climbing guide, Dallas. I was like, Jenny, there's no way. I'm not a good enough climber to be a guide. I interviewed and I got the job. And uh, 
working with people, you know, you think you get into guiding because you're like a really good climber or, and that's what you're going to do. You're going to go climbing all the time. And I was actually, this is in my interview. I told the story this past week too, because it's still like 10 years later. I think about this all the time. So I'm sitting there with this guy's name is George Dunn. George was, is one of the owners or was one of the owners at Inter- International Mountain Guides, the company I started with. George was interviewing me and like, just go Google George Dunn sometime because he's unreal. In the climbing world, the guy's like a legend. And so I'm sitting there across from this legend and I'm like trying to talk up all of my climbing. This and I climb that and aren't I wonderful? And he just goes, I'm going to stop you. Everybody's a good climber. And if you're not, I can teach you to be a good climber. I want to know, can I trust you to make a good decision in a high consequence environment? And can you hang out with people? And I think back on that all the time. And I'm like, you know, guiding, yeah, you got to be a good climber. Don't get me wrong. But like climbing is such not the point. The people are the point in guiding. And you're interacting with these folks and, and for a lot of them, like they're trying to achieve a like lifelong dream. They're oftentimes way out of their comfort zone, sometimes scared to the point of tears. I mean, this is, this is a really intense situation because you've got all these potential obstacles that could lead to death. And then you've got this person who's really putting themselves out there, maybe terrified, but the emotions that they have are actually you know, clouding their judgment. So you're having to kind of deal with them while you're actually dealing with the obstacles at the same time. I imagine that's unbelievably complicated. I felt like that was such an epiphany for me, being able to see them and know that it was all about them. The Northwest Avalanche Center is that way too. We are here to serve the public. Guiding, I'm here to be with these people, but I get to do all those things, right? I get to be outside. I have a team around me where I have a boss that I trust and believes in me, and I get to serve people. And those three things are like the check boxes that I'm like, that's why I do these jobs. Comments you were making earlier about following your passions. Same class I was talking to this past week. I was like, yeah, there's the old adage of like, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And that's totally true. But maybe the opposite is also true where do what you love and you will work every day in your life. My wife laughs at me all the time because she's like, what do you want to do on your day off? I'm like, go skiing. <laughs> and uh, I come down off of a mountain and she's like, what do you want to do tomorrow? I was like, I don't know. Why don't we go climbing? And uh, so like, you're always out there. It's so cool though, because you have such awareness. And I think that's what I love about your story to this point is you weren't trying to go find the thing. You started with you. You started and said like, well, what do I like? Well, I know I just want to be outside. I just don't want to be behind a desk. Well, that opens up all the opportunities of anything that you could look at that's just not behind it. It started in forestry. And now you're forecasting avalanches. You know, I mean, it's both are. And you just kind of moved from one thing to another that fit. And you just narrowed it down. And then you found these loves that you have. And then all of a sudden you tied those to a deeper purpose. And it's just like, oh my gosh, you know, you did it. You're right in the sweet spot. And I totally see it. I mean, you summed up a lot of what we're all about at Think Move Thrive as well. And the last 10%, I mean, when you look at how you connect with your teams and how you connect with your actual work with the purpose and with the people. It's just huge. And you're dealing with environments that most professionals are not dealing with. Most professionals, you know, they go and have a team and it's, you know, they go to the office or they go, you're dealing with life and death situations where you could fall off the side of a mountain or you could get covered by an avalanche and your teams are 
I mean, you've got to be really on your A game. You can't not be an elite team. You can't not work together. So when it really counts, it's just cool to hear you talk about what's important to you, what's important with your team and, and how, you know, all those things that you bring to the table. So that's, this is really cool. Speaking of guides and mountain guiding, you were featured in a magazine for a trip you took across the world. And that was over to Mount Everest. I'd love to know, we were talking about this earlier. You've got to see, because I was, I was so like, I'm like, okay, let's talk about how are you, you know, preparing for all this. So you got to tell the listeners <laughs> your training regimen, because I love it. I feel good about it because that's kind of the training regimen I feel like I do like every day now. So, I mean, maybe I could, I kind of gives me hope. So tell them your training regimen. It's a pretty intense training regimen that I don't know if everybody's cut out for. I in particular am. Uh, so I trained for Everest by eating just unordinate amount of buttery baked goods. My wife happens to be a spectacular baker, and I am generally a pretty scrawny individual. I knew I needed to gain weight for Everest. This isn't an exaggeration. Once a week, she would make me a new round of cinnamon rolls or macrons or Queen de Moss. She was making all this fancy stuff. That I have no idea what it is. I just know it is delicious, and I would just eat them. People are always kind of disappointed because they're like, what, you didn't like, you know, throw on an 80 pound pack and go running up the sides of mountains. And I'm like, well, that's kind of what I do for work. So I needed something different. I needed, I still, I lost something like about 15% of my body weight on Everest. I don't have 15% to lose. So I went in, I, I was actually the heaviest I've ever been in my life. I was intentionally trying to gain weight because I knew I was going to lose so much of it. Well, I may never climb Everest, but I, I think that I could train indefinitely for it. It sounds like the training for Everest is meant for me. The buttery baked goods is right down my alley. So that's good to know. I feel better about myself now. I can just say to tell everybody, look, don't look at me. Don't judge. I'm training for Everest. <laughs> so you said you just kind of dropped a bomb. You just lost 15%. Now I've hiked to the top of Table Rock, which is like, you know, a baby hill in your area. That's like a three-hour hike. I did not lose any percent of my body. You lost 15% going up one mountain. Tell us, just give us the idea of the journey of Everest. Just talk, talk a little bit about your journey on, on Mount Everest. When we think about a trip like Everest, it's easy to focus on that climb, summit day, getting to the top, and that is literally one day out of two and a half or three month journey that is on or en route to the mountain. So that day gets a lot of attention and rightfully so. Like, don't get me wrong. Like I, again, things that are ingrained in innate detail in my brain for the rest of my life, there's a lot of that day that is, but it's everything else. And you're out there for so long and you're living in high altitude. Even our base camp is at about 17,500 feet. You're spending time above 20,000 feet for five, six days at a time. You're in these wickedly cold environments where nighttime lows may be negative 20, negative 25 Fahrenheit. And quite frankly, your body is eating itself. You can't eat enough calories to keep up. And believe me, I try. Like a lot of people don't get, uh, they lose their appetite at high altitude. <laughs> Not this kid. I'm up there like 8,000 meters, which is like 26,000 feet. And I'm just like shoveling food in my face. I was so hungry. But your body is, the amount of energy it's having to put out to just breathe, to keep itself warm, 
and less alone to shoulder the backpack and, and put that weight on your back and then move it uphill. And you're doing that day in, day out. Yeah. So you, when you're climbing Everest, besides the trek in, you climb up a little ways up the mountain and you spend some time there and then you come back down and you rest. And then you go up a little farther and you spend some more time on the mountain and then you come back down and you rest. And there's these cycles, so we call them rotations, but there's these cycles of like climbing for about a week and then coming back down and resting for about five, six, seven days. And you know, I think sometimes we, um, me, I am really bad at this. I'm really bad at taking rest breaks. Uh, and I think we underappreciate the value of time away, of time off, of rest. And yeah, I'm still sleeping in a tent, uh, but I'm not out there having to work day in, day out. I'm wearing a cotton hoodie as I go to breakfast, you know, like I'm trying to have some sort of normalcy of life, even though I'm sleeping in, a gla- in the middle of a glacier at 17,000 feet. Uh, normal life. <laughs> it, it is in my world. That's what's really funny. Yeah, it's this progression and working hard and then taking intentional rest. And honestly, a lot of my climbers, my clients that didn't find ways to rest well, didn't make it to the top. And because I think we, if you can't rest, if we can't come back and recharge and you're not going to go back into that next cycle at full bore at a hundred percent. And so, yeah, by the time you get to summit day, um, it is, it's kind of this crazy culmination of like two and a half months worth of climbing and trekking for a lot of my clients, it's also years of dreaming and months of they're actually really training, right? They're like in the gym, they're carrying the pack, they're doing those things we would think about. It really does kind of put the point on that day as to why it is in some regards so important and in other ways so utterly trivial. I feel really fortunate that I got to top out. I spent about an hour on top. That's kind of my norm. I generally hang out up there and I give my clients tea, take people's photos. But like when people ask me about Everest, it's probably one of the last things I talk about. I think there's so many other cool things that happened in the middle. Yeah, let's talk about that. So you're going up, you're climbing Mount Everest at different altitudes for several months to make it to the top. When you're going up each pass on each day that you, you know, kind of make an ascent, are you going up a little bit further each time? Or are you, you know, going different routes and exploring different ways to go up? I mean, why, for our listeners that are not expert climbers and don't have experience, why would you stay at this level and climb up and then come back down and climb up and come back down? Kind of seems like you would just get to a place and then just you're going all the way up the hill at some point and you're just moving forward. Your body needs time to adjust and adapt to be able to function at these really high altitudes. The fancy word is acclimatization and it basically just means building red blood cells. And so we, we go up there and we climb up. We have several camps along the mountain and like we may climb up to uh, a camp one and it might be at like 19,000 feet. We spend a couple of days there and then maybe we go up to camp two, which is like at 22,000 feet. And we spend a couple of days there. And each of those trips, we're stressing our bodies, we're being tested. And that stress is causing our bodies to react and be like, oh, wait a minute, Dallas needs more oxygen. So I'm going to build him more red blood cells. And then we come back down and rest down at 17,000 feet. And the body has the opportunity to build those red blood cells. And so every trip, you're going a little higher and you're stressing your body a little more. And then the last trip, like I remember going through the first thing you do right out of the gate, right out of base camp, it's called the Kumbu Icefall. And it's a famous spot of Everest. It's literally this like tumbling blocks the size of office buildings, tumbling blocks of ice. 
And it just looks like utter chaos of these just, I mean, huge blocks of ice. And it's the first thing right out of the gates, it's the most intimidating part of the whole mountain. And it's like the first thing you do. And I remember the first trip up the ice fall. It's hard. Your body is working. You're breathing really hard. And you're like, you know, moving. You're trying to be efficient. And that last trip, when you're going for your summit rotation, it's like a walk in the park. Because now your body's used to being at 20,000 feet. And it's like, hey, you want to go for a jog? No big deal. Like, I get it. Because your body's so ready to go. Just a, a funny story from the Kumbu Icefall. Because I do remember being like really taxed there one time. It was our, I think it was my second rotation. So we had gone up once. We'd come back down to base camp. We had rested. We were going up again. About halfway up the Kumbu Icefall is this place they call the football field. As I'm about to get to the football field, I'm climbing by myself. I have my clients climbing with uh, one of their Sherpa teammates. And the Sherpa are a, a local ethnic group that are really adapt at climbing at high altitude. They're incredibly hard workers. Excellent. Excellent in the mountains. And each one of my clients has their own Sherpa climbing with them. And I'm kind of responsible for all of my clients and all of the Sherpa that are climbing with them. And so my... That sound means it's time to take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. If you lead an organization or a team, one of the biggest challenges you face is developing your people. Think Move Thrive is here to help you on your journey. We've developed a coaching system that integrates into your team or organization to consistently develop your employees, build trust, gain valuable feedback, and increase accountability. Leadership retreats and summits are great. We even build those custom for our clients, but they're only part of the solution because they lack consistency. Our one-on-one coaching app is the missing piece in your employee development program. We help new leaders get to know their teams. We help technical managers be more relational. And we help ensure that your relational rock stars stay organized. We developed the system for a client, and it was so successful. We created the app to help more organizations develop their people, build trust, engagement, and you guessed it, performance. For more information, go to thinkmovethrive.com to learn more about the one-on-one coaching system and start developing your team today. Back to the show. My guiding style, and everybody's a little different in the Himalaya, I would kick all of my clients and Sherpa out the door. I would then pour myself a cup of tea. I'd drink a cup of tea, and then I would go climbing. And I would climb through my team. So I'd get to the person in the back. I'd spend 10, 15 minutes with them. And then I'd get to the next person, spend 10, 15 minutes with them. And, I, and I'd finish with the front group. And then that would like, let me see all of my clients. And then they're all getting to do things at their pace. And so I'm climbing through the ice. So I'm probably like mid team. And uh, I remember the radio going off on my shoulder and it's Nepalese and Sherpa in particular is a very, very, very fast language. My Sherpa teammates love to mock. I mean, I'm from Alabama, right? Like I can't speak English well. <laughs> so I definitely cannot speak Sherpa. <laughs> <laughs> And the radio just goes nuts. And I look over at one of my Sherpa PK and I'm like, PK, what they say? And he's like, there's been a really big collapse. All these ice blocks fell over. The route up is gone. It's obliterated. And so I get on the radio with my boss who's down in base camp. And I'm like, hey, here's what I'm hearing. What do you want me to do? He's like, get everybody to this like safe location. 
in a safe location would be like hanging out in the median of an interstate. <laughs> it is not safe. It's all relative. <laughs> safe is relative. Such a relative. So thing. I get there and it's freezing cold. It's middle of the night. It's like two in the morning. My expedition leader, Greg, goes, I want you to take your two strongest Sherpa and I want you to go find a way. And I was like, okay. And so I grabbed uh, Carmarita. He's an older guy. But don't get me wrong. He's still fit, but he's really wise in the mountains. Like watching Carmarita, like see the mountains. He's there's like wisdom in his eyes. And this other guy named Chuang Windu. And Chuang is known as Sherpa Yeti. When the Sherpa call you Yeti, <laughs> you're a beast. <laughs> the guy is like, he is so strong. And uh, I go climbing with Chuang and, and Carmarita and we're going at a fast clip and I am just fully huffing and puffing going up the ice fall. And I'm like, <laughs> and they have this word is Mikaru. And for those of you who may speak Spanish, it's kind of like gringo. It's a little derogatory. And they're kind of like, you're like stupid white guy is probably the right translation for it. And they're like, it's okay, Mikaru. It's okay, Mikaru. And I'm like, Screw! (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely out of breath, and uh, but I got to go climbing with them. We get up there, and and long story short, we actually find a way through the ice fall. We like restring some ropes, and I'm like climbing up these big blocks of ice, and get to the top. And at the very last one, like Chuang's at the top, and he just reaches down, grabs my hand, pulls me up, and pats me on the back. He goes, "We did it!" and uh. It was just this great moment of getting to go be out in the mountains with these two friends, coworkers. You know, I mentioned to you earlier, but going climbing with these guys is like getting to play pickup basketball with Michael Jordan. <laughs> I just got my rear end kicked, but they were nice enough to let me score a, maybe a shot or two. It was a really nice night. And then like to look back and to see the like line of headlamps coming at us and to know that essentially we had managed to salvage this day in the mountains and not make it just in vain. And I, I look back at that night a lot. I, I had a lot of fun going climbing in the Kumbu Icefall with uh, Chuang and Carmarita. I'm picturing things I've seen on YouTube where these, you're just using this axe and you're just kind of going up the side of a, a, looks like sheets of glass that's just hanging in midair. I mean, is, and it collapsed before you got there and you have to find a way around. In the middle of the night, was this, did you leave when you got in or were you able to get some sleep and then or did you just kind of head out? Because obviously you had to beat the team there. So were you guys, you guys are pioneers. Are you going out, you know, at daybreak or, or are you going out in the middle of the night? Middle of the night. I think generally we wake up at like midnight, one o'clock in the morning, you eat breakfast and then you go. And uh, there's an entire team of Sherpa. They're called the Icefall Doctors. It's probably one of the most revered jobs in the Himalaya, in the Kumbu region where, where Everest is. They go in there near daily and they maintain a route and there's ropes. There's like ropes hanging on the sides of these cliffs of ice. And they put these ladders in that will cross these chasms, these crevasses that are 200 plus feet deep. Sometimes if you can imagine taking a couple painting ladders and strapping them together with rope uh, and then laying them down and walking across them. Safely, safely. And I say this in quotations, safely walking across them. That's like, again, we're playing in the middle of the interstate, safely walking yeah, across. Yeah, that's pretty much. They broke together a ladder. Oh, man. But it's incredible. And so when that ice collapsed that night, I remember seeing this ladder, just like we would go use to go paint our house. The thing's tied in a stinking knot. 
It looked like a tornado had hit it. And it's hanging on a rope in the middle of this crevasse, just dangling. It looks like bomb went off. There's ice blocks everywhere, and you can't see anything of a route. Yeah, that was probably one of my biggest. There's a lot of memories from Everest, but that was definitely one of those for me that was like, I got to camp one, and normally I would, on that rotation, I would have kept going on all the way to camp two. And I got to camp one, and I was like, I ha- I've been moving for eight hours with no food, no water. I collapsed in this gear tent. I was so tired. And I remember there was this like oxygen cylinder and I'm like using it as a pillow. And <laughs> it was the most comfortable pillow I've ever yeah. had in my life. <laughs> and this one of my Sherpa team wakes me up and he's like, uh, they call me Dallas Dai, which is like a sign of respect. It's very overly polite and not well-deserved for me. But they're like, Dallas Dai, Dallas Dai. I had you rara, which is ramen. They brought me this bowl of ramen, and I just remember being so thankful for that food because <laughs> I was so hungry and so tired, and I slept the whole day, and then I got up that afternoon and walked to camp too. Oh, that's amazing. Dude, what a great story. It's awesome. I've just learned that I can have a new a- ambition. I want to, you know, when I train for a Mount Everest, I'm shooting to be a Sherpa Yeti. So that's, uh, you go, I don't think I'll ever make that one, but uh, that's such a cool story. I love the fact that you were part of an elite group that's going out. Again, you said how you're passionate about serving others and using your skills to serve others. And here you go, you know, off in the middle of the night with two guys that you've been climbing with and here find the way, you know, around the, you know, kind of the obstacle is the way. We've got this whole sheet of, you know, ice that's come down and we've got to figure out how to go over, under, around. Such a cool story. So, so you make it through these obstacles, you make it to the summit. I know you said it's like bittersweet a little bit, Tell us about what it's like at the top of the world. So I got really lucky. I topped out to the South Summit. So as you climb up Everest, there's kind of like a fault summit. For anybody who's probably done any hiking and has hiked to the top of a mountain, you're like, you're like, see the rise in front of you and like, we're there. And you hit it and you're like, oh, okay, that's the South Summit. And I got to the South Summit and I stopped to have some tea and the sun starts coming up. And that stretch from there to the summit is known as the cornice traverse and a cornice is like a wave of snow and they look like a frozen wave of snow and to the left is like 7,000 feet straight down and you can see camp two between your legs and to the right is like 9,000 feet straight down into China and the cornice traverse is just like narrow ridge and you're walking along it or on your own side of it and the sun's coming up and it's like the most beautiful hour of climbing I've ever done in my life. I've been climbing for 26 years, most beautiful hour of climbing I've ever done. And I remember the moment the like sun crested the horizon and the shadow of Everest just like exploded to the West. It's just like triangle shaped shadow that just goes out. And I was like, that's got to be like a lot of mountains cast shadows, but that was one of the more impressive things. I remember just being dumbfounded. I remember trying to grab for my camera and uh, my battery was too cold and I was like, dang it. And I'm like, you know, like I said, it's like seven grand straight down, right? This is like not the place to change the battery and the camera. So I, uh, I didn't take any photos right then. I did get some of the sunrise shadow, but climb up, I get to the top and you know, you're, you're at 29,000 feet your brain is not working. (laughs) So even on oxygen, it's funny in the moment, I'm like, I'm so good. And looking back, I'm like, I was kind of loopy. 
But I remember seeing these people coming at me from the other side. And I was like, that's weird. Where are they coming from? But they're coming from the other route up Everest that comes out of China. And you kind of like see these people and you walk to the top at the same moment. And you realize that they just achieved the same thing you did. And you all of a sudden, there's this like high fives and hugs. And you don't know these people. Most of them, you don't speak their language. And they are so excited. And, you know, for me, like I mentioned earlier, the top, it's a really brief moment that I get to actually think about it. Because the first thing that I got to do is I'm like, okay, where are my clients? Uh, Okay, let's get that one. T, that guy's glove is off. Why is your glove off, Alan? Right, put the glove on. And (laughs) and so I'm like zipping up. He's like, I'm fine, I'm fine. No, I'm all right. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like taking photos. Yeah, it's like 25 below. Oh my God. And uh, so I'm taking photos. I'm giving people tea and making sure they're eating. And similarly to how I guide, uh, the way I always spend my days on the summit is I take care of all my clients. I get them all their photos, I get them food, and then I kick them out because they need to get down. And I then I stop, I have tea, and I sit for like about five or 10 minutes and I just freaking spin around and I'm like, literally everything on earth right now is below me. Most airplanes are below me at this point. And I, I really tried to capture that moment in my brain because I was like, you know, I never know, am I going to get to go back? And yeah, I work as a guide and I honestly, I don't know if I ever will go back. I, part of my brain's like not quite ready still. It's a lot of mental energy to guide Everest. You got a lot of heavy emotion, a lot of heavy responsibility for a really long span of time. And honestly, on my way down, things didn't go perfectly. I spent a good chunk of my descent off of Everest dealing with people that were trying to die on Everest. And I'm not quite sure if I'm ready to go back for that. And so I'm glad I got to have that moment at the top because basically, actually the only reason I want to go back is because the way down to me is this time to reflect. And I feel like in some regards, I was so robbed of that moment of reflection because near almost right off the bat, things just started to go sideways. And by the time it was all over, uh, I had been on my feet for 29 straight hours. I had been up for 40. I was absolutely exhausted, but I'll tell a funny story to get out of the like the heavy stuff. I get back to camp two. All four people that I dealt with on the way down that were having issues are alive, all going to make it. And I'm like, can't believe that's happened because I, I actually was certain that was not going to be the case. And uh, I get, I walk into camp two and it's like three in the morning. Our, we had like a kitchen at camp two. It's freaking nuts. Like you're at 22,000 feet on the side of a glacier and we have like a kitchen tent. And the food that comes out of there is relatively amazing. Like it's absolutely really, really good. And Tendi comes out and uh, Tendi's a Sherpa and, and he comes out and he, Dallas die, Dallas die, Dallas die. I bring you rara. And I'm like, no Tendi juice, juice. I'm so dehydrated. I haven't had anything to drink or eat in hours. And he's like, I make you yak steak. No, 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 Tendi, Tendi juice. No, Tindy, juice. I just need something to drink. The poor guy was would have made me anything I asked for. And I'm like, all I want, buddy, is juice. He takes me, he finally gets me juice. He puts me to bed and he gave me a tent way away from everybody. But Tindy knows I love coffee. And you might remember that from our time at Clemson together. I love coffee. You know, again, it's like 3.30 in the morning at this point. I'm finally laid down. I'm exhausted. I don't even think I got out of my down suit. I literally like face down on the tent, just like, passed out eight o'clock 
Dallastai, Dallastai, I bring you coffee. I bring you coffee. And you're like, you're kidding me. Let me sleep. Just give trying, me a minute, man. Give me a minute. so hard. You're like, he was being so nice. And all I wanted to do was sleep. But I got up and he gave me coffee. And I, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it's an amazing place. Absolutely uh, spectacular. Anybody who, who wants to talk about how it's overly commercialized or like, a walk up. I love it when people tell me Everest is a walk up. I'm like, you haven't been there, have you? <laughs> and uh, it is. It's an interesting place, but it's also spectacular. Tell me about this. Tell me because you you know you kind of described a group of people, and the way you described them on the way down was that they were trying to kill themselves almost. And I've always been curious because you hear the stories of the people that are you know somewhere on the path in the snow and they're buried on the mountain, and because they can't get them down for whatever reason. It always intrigues me because you described the ascent to the summit and then coming down and you just have a plan and you're executing it. What is the mindset that you would be concerned with as a guide as they're going up? If you've got a mindset like this, as a guide, you're thinking from either the start or the top, you're going, oh my gosh, I'm worried about this person. They're in danger of, of not making it. That's a great question, Dallas. I mean, honestly, um, most of those weren't had anything to do with our operation they're other climbers and you're stuck in this really big ethical dilemma as a guide. You have the skill set to deal with this. You're probably strong enough physically to deal with this. And you have this contractual obligation to your clients who have paid money. And the reason that you're there is not to hold their hand. You're there almost as an insurance policy in case stuff goes wrong. Yeah. You coach and you help and you teach the biggest reason you're there is to deal with stuff when things go sideways. But now you got this person over here who's with another company and they're going to die if you don't stop and help. But if you stop and help, you're spending your energy, which is a very finite resource on this person that you have no contractual obligation to. And now what do you do if one of your people goes down? And so there's this moral dilemma as a guide. And uh, at the end of the day, I can't walk past that. Talking to my uh, expedition leader who's down in base camp, and that's like the biggest thing I can say is you got somebody who's at the 30,000 foot view. They're at 17,000 feet, so they have a lot of oxygen. And they are seeing things clearly. And you're up there, you're at whatever, 26,000 feet, 28,000 feet, and your brain's hypoxic. It's not working. And you want to make one decision. And they're like, okay, before you make that decision, I'm going to ask you these five questions. How much oxygen is in your tank? How much food do you have? How much water do you have? Where's the rest of your crew, these people who you are responsible for? Let's make sure they're taken care of right now. Okay, are all these boxes being checked? Now let's deal with this person. But it is a really weird spot to be put in where you're like, I have this obligation over here, but I'm also a human being and I am not walking past this person right now. And so, uh, you know, that's probably one of the big, that might be the only real issue I have with Everest. Because at the end of the day, we care for each other and we are going to take care of them. It oftentimes comes at great personal risk. I don't really take that lightly. Uh, my wife was sitting back here. She was really worried that I had not checked in because she knew she was like, if stuff goes sideways, Dallas will be a part of fixing it. She had noticed that my boss had not put up the all clear message because I was not clear. I was still on the mountain. And uh, she definitely took notice. 
And in a sort of funny and sort of twisted story, uh, there was a fatality on Everest while I was up there. Uh, It was the day before me, but the climber was from Alabama. So headline in the newspaper the next day is Alabama climber dies on Everest. You better believe (laughs) every family friend we have was like, oh no, Dallas died. Yeah. I mean, how many, how many Alabama climbers are on Mount Everest I know, at the right? same time, right? I mean, really. <laughs> Apparently, there's two of us that are really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm pretty sure all it takes to climb Everest is being really dumb. <laughs> but uh, our friends here in Seattle all start calling each other. We need to go over. We need to go be with Susie right now. And so they call up and they're like, we're coming over. And Susie's like, why? Oh, man. And they're like, we heard about Dallas. And she's like, yeah, he's fine. He's at camp too. <laughs> oh man. It was, I mean, Everest is a crazy place. Uh, there's a lot to it. And uh, you know, if anybody who is out there, if you're thinking about it, like I think you na- really need to think about the risk. The rewards are also amazing. And you can think about those summit as a reward and that's fine. But I'll tell you that Cornus Traverse hour of climbing that I talked about, that time climbing with Carmarita and Chuang Lindu, a story I was sharing with Dallas earlier about getting to have tea at one of my Sherpa's homes. Those are the stories I tell because they're the ones I think about all the time. They're the ones that I look at when I think of my Everest journey. And I'm like, that was what impacted me as a person. Those are the moments that changed me. I've been at this point in my climbing career, like I said, I'm like 26 years deep in climbing. And uh, I've been on, fortunately for me, I've been on you know, hundreds or thousands of summits. I can maybe tell you about like six of them, but I can probably tell you about every climb I've ever been on because of the people or some story like that. It's very rarely the top that ever has an impact. It's generally some other piece of the climb. And the top is just so that we know when to go home. (laughs) Right. It's over. It's time to turn around, right? Uh, Wow. That's awesome. So that's just an incredible story. I, I really, there's so many things that you said. One of the things that you said that really stuck out to me, and I feel like there's so many applicable things that you said as it relates to leaders at any level. This word picture really stepped out. I mean, you said you left the camp, you left last, and then you climbed through your team. That's the best analogy of a great servant leader that is relational and people-focused and knows the value of the team and is going to find where the gaps are in that team along the way. And you start at the back and work your way up and you just, it's like you leave nobody behind but it's not like leaving somebody back at base camp. It's that you're going through them as you go on the journey. You're walking this path together and you're not leaving any relationships back at base camp. See you at the summit. You're saying, I'm taking those all the way through the line and I'm climbing through my team. I thought that was fantastic. I mean, it's an incredible, incredible point. So I, I love that. Finishing out on the, the guiding kind of concept in your work in that, you've obviously led teams up all kind of, you know, incredible terrain and and mountains and with the avalanche forecasting. When you think about high-performing teams that have to really focus and come together and and be really elite at what they do when the stakes are really high, what's important to you? That's a really good question. Uh, When I think about my teammates, I'm oftentimes referring to my co-guides. And my clients can be teammates under certain situations, but most of the time, that's really not who I'm looking to have my back. It's my co-guide or co-guides, depending on the climb. And 
a couple of things that I think are really, really important in those teams. And man, there's nothing like the bonds that are built over uh, guiding a big mountain together. I actually just bumped into this guy who I guided Denali with last summer. Just he and I, small team with a couple clients. I bumped into him the other day. We both about tackled the other person. We couldn't wait to hug him because we just, I mean, you spend, you know, whatever, three weeks in a tent with a guy, like you get really close. Number one is that, yeah, somebody's got to be the leader, but at the end of the day, you're all in this together. And the story that I always use on that is that my first climb ever of Mount Rainier, I never climbed the thing. And I was out there, the girl, Jenny, I mentioned earlier, my good friend who was like, you're going to be a guide. Jenny was the lead guide. And we leave out of this camp and uh, it's like 11,000 feet. We're in the middle of a glacier and we leave out of this camp and it snowed. And Jenny goes, Dallas, over the radio. She's like, Dallas, I want you to get up front. I want your opinion of the avalanche danger out here. And I'm like, on the radio, I'm like, Jenny, I've never climbed Mount Rainier before. I don't know where to go. And she's like, I don't care. This is your expertise. I want your opinion. And that's something I always appreciated with the company that I worked for, the company that I'm working with now, is that the fastest way to wash out as a guide at those companies is to not speak up with an opinion when we're talking about risk. And so and every single person has a, a voice and every single person has a veto. You can be first climb, first year guide. You tell me we should turn around, we're done. We're all going down. And so I think that like, yeah, somebody's got to be the leader, but making sure that it doesn't matter. We're all in this together. And that means everybody's voice matters. And we sit at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, and we have, we call them risk management meetings, but we basically, we go through like, okay, like what are the hazards? What are we going to do about it? How are, is this enough? Is this going to manage this? And those, you know, those young guides, I actually find most of the time they're right. You know, I can think I'm awesome and like, I got all these skills I'm doing this. But like at the end of the day, a lot of times their insight and their concerns and sometimes their fears are so intuitively correct. And, you know, if you're going to be the person in charge, you got to listen to that. Everybody has a voice. Everybody has a veto is a huge piece to me. When I guide solo, which I do more now than I used to, there's nobody watching my back, making sure I don't do something boneheaded and maybe kill me and my client. So instead, now my client's my teammate, and I've got to figure out a way to empower that person, to give them a voice, to give them something to look for. And, and I do that a lot with, with one, I'm, I'm just pretty straight up about it. I'm like, here's the deal. I'm out here solo. Uh, if you let me do something stupid, we both die. But also, I'm like, don't assume, like, I'm a person. We are fallible people. We make mistakes. So I need you to be looking out for these risks. I want you to look out for this, 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 and this. And if you see it, you tell me. Don't assume, even if it's the most obvious thing. If you're like, the 18-wheeler is barreling at you, surely Dallas sees it. No, he probably doesn't. I'm probably like, haven't eaten and I'm super hungry. And I really try to go out of my way to empower those people to be like, give them a task that they can do. And, and make sure that they know they've got skin in the game. And, and I quite literally have skin in the game in these cases. Even though they're my client, they're now my teammate. You know, those are some of my strongest friendships. You know, it's nothing like being in the trenches, battling a massive Alaskan storm. I think that's why Keith was the guy I just bumped into. We 
just absolutely ate this Alaskan storm for like eight hours. I got back Dallas and my beard was just this huge ice beard. I actually <laughs> threw it up. I, I'm not, I'm not a massive social media guy, but I did throw it up on Instagram because I was like, you know, all my photos are these like beautiful blue sky days where I'm playing in the mountains. And I was like, this is the reality of climbing. This was hard. This hurt. I'm tired. And I've got this massive ice beard. <laughs> um, but again, uh, back to teammates. I, there was another team from the same company, IMG, International Mountain Guides, that was at the camp that we were coming back to. We weren't working with them, but they were on the mountain with us. And man, I walked in. They had made me like smoked salmon quesadillas. Oh, man. That sounds so good. Best thing I've ever had in my life. Oh, so, uh, yeah. And uh, you're so tired. You're so hungry. And they just take care of you. And so uh, I, maybe if I can add one more piece to this, like, you know, I want teammates that are, that are a little selfless and are willing to, to look out for you, even when it's not their job. And that's what I really saw. And in those two that day where they put up our tent for us, they melted snow. So we had water and they had Keith and I uh, a quesadilla because they knew that we had been feeding the clients all day. And we probably had been throwing down food too, but as a guide, you never get enough, your, your calorie deficit. So they had food waiting on us when we got there. And uh, yeah, Rowan and Nicole like really stepped up that evening to go out of their way to support us as, as teammates. That's so awesome. That is so awesome. Dallas, this has been an amazing conversation. I know everyone has just been on the edge of their seat when you're talking about climbing up ice walls in the middle of the night and drinking coffee after coming down off the top of Everest. It's just an incredible story. I love it. I love all of it. I love what you're doing. And I love your heart uh, for your teammates and for those that you guide and, and uh, for what you do. Um, so I think what we're going to have to do, because there's just so much good stuff, I think what we're going to do is we still have so much to cover in the most interesting man alive story. We haven't even scratched the surface of his 500 mile bike race that we were going to uh, chat a little bit about. But I think what I want to do instead is I want to do, our, we, we're going to introduce a segment at the end. This is for fun. We're going to go ahead and try this. Okay. So we'll introduce this segment. It's called the cheese please challenge. Now, what we believe is, is that the world doesn't have enough cheese in it. And it needs a little bit more because everybody's a little tightly strung after 2020. And we need to put a little bit more cheese out there. So what I'm going to do, Dallas, this is, uh, this is just how we have a little bit of fun on the last 10%. I'm going to ask you three extremely poor <laughs> jokes. These are like the worst Laffy Taffy dad joke, bad jokes ever. Just so you know, two of them are mountain-related. These are curated <laughs> from the Archive of Greatness. I mean, it is, it's amazing. So we're going to ask you three. If you can answer any of them correctly, we're going to give you a cheer. We'll suffer together uh, for this. So, all right, you ready for this? Totally. Okay, so air used to be free at the gas station, and now it's like $1.50. Dallas, do you know why? <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, it's inflation, man. <laughs> so bad. Oh, my gosh. Oh. All right. All right. We got to get this one. All right. You, now, this is for you. This is a mountain. So uh, what do fashionable mountains wear when it's cold? I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm so bad. terrified. So, an ice cap. Uh, oh. No, oh. No. Yes. Oh. We went there. So, all right, last one. Let's see if we got this. I think this is yours. I think this is going to be yours. All right, why didn't the skeleton climb the mountain? 
No, I got nothing for you, <laughs> It didn't have the guts. Oh! <laughs> All right, I got one. I got one for you. Oh, uh, oh, okay. Reverse the tables. I love yeah, it. All right, this is uh, you know one of my mentors when I started guiding always said a guide needs to have a snack, a story, and a joke at hand at all times. So here you go, Dallas. What did the little mountain say to the mama mountain? Oh, the little mountain to the mama mountain. Hi, I have no idea. Mom, I think I just avalanched. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love uh, it. Mountain humor. This is awesome. Oh, that's awesome. Hey, man, thank you for that. That was, that's awesome. I'll have to tell my kids that later tonight. That's awesome. Let me ask you a question. Do you have, if you, and you can think about this, but if you ever think about a guest, you have to let me know because we're going to ask each guest at the end of the shows. But if you think about somebody that you'd ever want to have or hear on the last 10%, I'd love to get your feedback on that. It could be somebody famous. It could be somebody just infamous. <laughs> it could be somebody that you know or just want to hear that's a professional or expert in their field. But while you're thinking about that, tell us how, if, if somebody's interested in what you do or somebody wants to learn more about the Northwest Avalanche Center or the classes in the, the school of education, what's the best way to reach out to either that or to you? For the Northwest Avalanche Center, you can always go to our website. It's uh, NWAC, Northwest Avalanche Center, .us. Uh, you can also reach out to me. It's just my name, dallas.glass at nwac.us. Uh, you know, if you're interested in snow, if you're interested in the mountains, if you're interested in climbing, I'm always happy to talk to people about it. Obviously, I, I love talking about climbing. I love skiing. I was actually listening to a podcast the other day of one of my snow mentors, uh, this guy, Tom Carter, who is, I consider to be like one of the best storytellers around. Tom was being interviewed and I just like, you know, this is my biggest thing that I leave people with. Like if you are interested in that kind of stuff, Tom's like, you just got to go outside. And I think about that a lot when I'm like, got the inertia of the chair or the couch and the TV. And, you know, I'm like, maybe the weather's not quite what I want it to be. And I'm like, you just got to go outside. Uh, you can just learn so much about the mountains, about yourself, about climbing, by just going out and being there. I also have told people I've never once summited a mountain sitting on a couch. So sometimes you just got to go put your nose in it. Maybe you turn back. Maybe the weather's awful. That's fine. But uh, never have I, have I summited sitting on a couch. Man, I love that. We got to move, man. We got to move. That's what we like to say. We got to move. So I think that's so good. If the listeners haven't got some amazing things out of this conversation today, then they must have the volume turned down because you have been dropping some amazing value nuggets on this path. And I just appreciate your time. I, like I said, I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate your life with purpose and living with mission and how you care about people and, and how you're passionate about the work you do and how you found that. And it's kind of been the journey that you've been on. It's not like this destination and you're like, made Mount Everest. So now it's like, oh, well, you know, now what, you know, and I just love that, man. I love your attitude. It's just been so much fun talking to you today. You know, I think that hopefully, hopefully we've got some leaders that's listening to this show that's pulled in some things of real importance, how you've talked about building trust with your team and other guides and how you've talked about climbing through the team, climbing through your team and just spending time to get to know those people that you're working hand in hand with side by side with every day when you're going through that. And everybody's job might not, might not be as life and death as yours is every day. And that might just take that edge off. And so I hope that your story 
is inspiring to them because they need that, that the value of those personal relationships and that connection with your teammates is still just as strong, just as big. They just may not feel it as much as you do because it's life and death. And so I just, I really appreciate your time. We will have you back. If you'll come back on the show, we will have you back on the show because if you're listening, Dallas is the most interesting man alive. And we've got some way more stories to cover with him about all his adventures off the mountain and on the bike and, and how he met his wife and all this stuff. Unbelievable stories. So uh, we'll have to do this again. You're a part of the first episode. First ever. Man, I get to interview Dallas Glass first episode ever. So thanks again, Dallas. And it's just been a pleasure. So humbling to get to come do this with you. I have so many great memories from our time together. And it's honestly just been so delightful to get to catch up. Thanks for having me. And uh, anytime, man, reach out. I love getting to hang out with you. And hopefully next time I'm up in South Carolina, we can at least maybe I can hug your neck because I miss getting to do that too. There you go. There we go. I'll take it, man. Well, thanks again. And we'll see you soon, Dallas. Thanks for joining us today on The Last 10%. We hope you found today's content engaging and encouraging. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear the latest episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us so others will join our community. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. This podcast can be found globally in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Subscribe today. Plus, visit our website, join our email list, and discover resources and info for your business and team at thinkmovethrive.com. Thanks again for listening to The Last 10%.